Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. You know, last week we spent some time talking about what what is God doing, what is God stirring in our hearts, what does church community look like, what are some of the things that, that we've been drawn to in the journey that we've been on over the last little while. And I was really encouraged by that and really blessed by, by the responses um, in that so much of it was about our internal and our inner life with Jesus. The, the response of you know, what was stirring and what was resonating wasn't about a particular method or formula, but it was actually about our internal life with the Lord. And kind of in my mind, I kind of tried to summarize it in a couple of phrases, and that's just how I kind of work. And Sarah was asking for a bit of a summary. And maybe it's because the the rewords have been the ones that have been resonating with me the most, the kind of, you know, return, rebuild, revive, rediscover, all those kind of words, that the things that resonated with me and what I felt like summarized so much of our discussion was, was firstly returning to our personal relationship with Jesus, kind of returning to that being our first priority and our first focus, that we want our personal life with Jesus to be our main priority when it comes to gathering like this, but also at home during the rest of the week and in our families, that it's really at its core all about growing in our personal life with the Lord and returning to our first love. It's also about restoring or rebuilding deep, authentic community where everyone has a voice and everyone is kind of safe and able to be a part of the community. So there's the the returning to our personal relationship with Jesus, rebuilding deeper, authentic community, and also restoring church as part of our everyday life, right? That the church is not something that you go to, a building that you go to for two hours on a Sunday, but that's actually, you know, us as believers being built into God's image and, and the temple each and every day based on the choices that we make, the life that we live at home, in workplaces, wherever that might be. And so that's those kind of three words that were resonating with me off the back of the conversation last Sunday, return, rebuild and restore. And I think for, for me, at least, that, that really kind of captured a lot of the, the conversation. It was you know, focusing back on our personal relationship with Jesus, the importance of community where everyone has a voice and everyone's able to feel cared for and supported. And then also, you know, bringing church out of a building on a Sunday morning into our everyday life where we can use our gifts and be who God's called us to be in our everyday lives, recognizing that Really, it's a very small proportion of people who have their gifts that are primarily expressed in a Sunday church context. 98% of people, the primary expression of their gifts is through family, through workplace, whatever that might, might be. And restoring that picture and that way of operating as followers of, of Christ. And so thinking about those, those words, returning and rebuilding and restoring, I, you know, was reminded that ultimately that probably is the narrative of the whole gospel story, right from the very beginning. It's actually about returning back to God's original design, kind of rebuilding us into who he originally wanted us to be. 
and then also restoring the kingdom. That's ultimately what's going to happen when, when Jesus comes back. The whole gospel narrative is this idea of returning and rebuilding and, and restoring. And beyond being the whole gospel narrative, it also reminded me of, you know, I don't know, two siblings kind of fighting and then making up as well. All right, I was thinking about that's often what happens between Lucas and Joel or something like that, where you kind of, I don't know, something happens and then eventually one of them returns back to wherever the incident occurred and then ends up rebuilding the tower that had been destroyed and they kind of, you know, restore back into being happy brothers or happy siblings again. And there's this kind of, yes, that is the the overall narrative of the gospel, but I think when you look through the history of the people of God and even through scripture, there's seasons within that that seem to specifically focus on this idea of returning and rebuilding and, and restoring. And what I've been drawn to a lot recently again, but really over the last couple of years as we've been on this journey, is the, the Israelites returning back to the promised land and rebuilding the, the temple of God. And, you know, there's something about the journey that they went on that has really resonated with me personally and, and I believe that for us as a community, and look, this is probably something that resonates perhaps more broadly, that I think we are in a season where ultimately we're kind of returning from exile and rebuilding something again. And whether you want to see the couple of years of lockdown perhaps as exile, depending on your perspective, maybe it was. There's this idea of kind of, you know, leaving where we were and kind of not necessarily being sent away in a physical sense, but being sent away from all of the stuff that was keeping us busy, all of the life that we used to live. And now we're having to navigate and wrestle with what does returning look like? What does, how do we rebuild in a season that is now different to where we were three or four years ago? And what are we focusing on restoring in, in all of that? And so that's the kind of journey I wanted to continue this morning in digging into the book of Ezra primarily. And to provide a little bit of sort of historical context, I know that it's a book perhaps that doesn't get a whole lot of airtime necessarily. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how often, you know, you, you've heard people talk about the book of Ezra. Um, but Ezra apparently, surprise, surprise, wrote the book of Ezra. But he also, um, most Bible scholars would say, wrote the books of Chronicles as well. Um, and this was a time where... The kingdom of Israel had been split into northern and and southern. So it was a divided kingdom. Um, The the northern kingdom was known as Israel and that had cities like Samaria and things like that in it. And that had already been conquered and been sent into exile by the Assyrians in kind of 730-ish BC. And so there was already one exile that had happened. And then we find ourselves here at the back end of of 2 Chronicles and into Ezra, where the Babylonians have invaded Jerusalem, which is the southern kingdom. And that was the kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, where the temple of God was. And so the, the Babylonians came in around 597 BC. And one of the things that I didn't appreciate until I started looking into it a little bit more was that they came in and they didn't take everyone away straight away. We think that it was kind of one, one battle and everyone was shipped off. But actually they, they came in and, and first of all, they took all of the, the royals or the government officials. And that's where Daniel was, was taken. And he went to Babylon and you, know, you, can, you can read about the, the important role that he had in that season. 
but there was kind of a 10 or so year period where the Babylonians effectively had control of Jerusalem, but they hadn't destroyed it and they hadn't cleared everyone out. Um, but then there was kind of ongoing tensions between the Babylonians and the Jews that, that were there. And eventually it got to a place where the Babylonians came in and destroyed all of Jerusalem. And we picked that up in, in 2 Chronicles 36 from verse 17. And so we'll, we'll start there and then we'll move into Ezra. And Ezra is the book that follows 2 Chronicles. So hopefully that is easy enough to, to follow. 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 17. And it says, So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young and old, men and women, healthy and sick. God handed them all over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king also took home to Babylon all the utensils, large and small, used in the temple of God and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and the royal palace. He also took with him all the royal princes. Then his army set fire to the temple of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken away to Babylon and they became servants to the king and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate for 70 years just as the prophet had said. And the reason I wanted to, to focus on this is that I find it fascinating that one of the kind of prophetic reasons for the, the 70-year exile here was so that the land could have its Sabbath rest. We've just spent two, three months talking about the importance of rest and finding rest for our souls. And here there's, you know, most history would say that Judah had spent 490-odd years ignoring God's command to give the land that one year of rest every seven years. All right, so in Exodus 23, God commands the Israelites that they are meant to have six years for planting and, and reaping, but then on the seventh, the land is to have its rest. And they'd ignore that command for 490, 500 years. And if you do the maths, there's effectively 70 Sabbaths that they missed, which is why the exile was for 70 years. And Jeremiah prophesied that. If you look at Jeremiah 29, verse 10, he speaks very clearly that that is the reason as well and says that it is to be 70 years and that's why it's mentioned in this passage here about the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. There's this kind of 70 years of missed rest, 70 years of missed Sabbath that needed to be made up. Um, and once that was finished, then the Israelites were able to return back to the promised land. And the first thing that struck me there as we think about the season that we're in and the journey that we're on is that perhaps there's a, a key for us in actually honoring rest and bringing rest into our rhythm of life that enables us to be able to return back to the promised land. That if we want to be those that are embracing all that God is doing in this season, we need to actually be those that are also embracing God's command to rest and including that in our lives. Because it was only once the land had enjoyed all of its Sabbath rests that the people were able to return again. 
And so, you know, I know it's been what, only a couple of weeks since we talked about it, but it's probably worth recognizing that that's not something that, you know, we just leave behind for, you know, those, those couple of months, but actually that's an important part of what it means to live our everyday life with the Lord. It doesn't mean we necessarily need to be religious about having a day where we do absolutely no work in the same way that the Jews did and never lifted their hand or did anything. But I do think rest needs to be a priority in our lives if we're going to be good stewards of the season that we're, that we're walking into. And so I wonder what that, what that looks like for, for each of us. And like I said, it's not about a religious kind of rule that needs to be abided by for each individual family. That's something that we can pray through and work through in our own way with the Lord, but making sure that we have space to rest, whether that's switching off our phones or switching off social media for a night or a day or whatever that might look like, making sure we have space to be able to, to rest, because I think that's an important part of being able to embrace the return and the rebuilding that God is doing right now. And I should say, as we're kind of working through this, feel free to chime in. If you've got thoughts or questions along the way, um, feel free to, to ask or happy to chat as we, as we go through things. But I just wanted to flag that because I found it really fascinating that it was in order to give the land its Sabbath rest that were one of the primary reasons that they ended up going into exile into Babylon. And then after those, effectively, it was a little bit before 70 years that then we pick up in Ezra chapter 1. What had happened in Babylon was that King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, were taken over by King Cyrus of Persia. And Persia had come in to, come in to control the land. And it says, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy by stirring the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation into writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in the land of Judah. All of you who are his people may return to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. Those who live in any place where Jewish survivors are found should contribute toward their expenses by supplying them with silver and gold supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a free will offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And fascinating, you know, King Cyrus was a pagan king. He wasn't a follower of, of Jesus. And yet God uses him here as part of his plan in bringing the people of God back to the promised land. And, and some would say that, King Cyrus apparently didn't do this just for the Jewish people. This was one of his ways of ruling and trying to keep the different lands that he conquered effectively, hopefully free from rebellion by saying you're free to kind of practice your own religion. And it might have been him hedging his bets to kind of go, hopefully I've got favor with all of the different gods from all of the different places. But I, I find it interesting that it was a pagan king who made the declaration and it was a pagan king who promise the return and the rebuilding of the temple. And I think sometimes perhaps we as a, as a church have been too inward focused at times and haven't actually kind of had our perspective outward enough to be able to see the way God is moving because he's so much bigger and so much greater than our little kind of limited world that he can use whoever he wants, however he wants. And perhaps part of this season is beginning to look 
outside of those that are on a stage at church on a Sunday and begin seeing the way God might move throughout different parts of society in different ways to bring his purposes to pass in the same way here that it was through King Cyrus, a pagan king. And so I wonder whether perhaps we've been too inward focused and too insular and it's time to to lift our perspective and recognize that that God is far greater and God bigger and far bigger than, than perhaps we've we've realized or perhaps we've carried in our hearts as a revelation. And King Cyrus, you know, isn't just mentioned here. It's Isaiah 45, where he's actually called the Lord's anointed, which in itself is an interesting kind of theological question. Here's a, here's a pagan king who apparently didn't have a relationship with God at all, but the Lord calls him his anointed in Isaiah 45. And that in itself is amazing that, you know, years before this happened, um, the prophet Isaiah named him by name. Um, as, as Cyrus. And again, it's just the sovereignty of God. Um, and when you begin kind of putting pieces together and the way God orchestrates history and the way he speaks through things. Um, and then after Cyrus gives the, the proclamation and says, you can return to Jerusalem and rebuild the land. I don't know, I wonder whether you... I've thought about this before, and if you haven't spent a whole lot of time looking into Ezra, you know, our initial response probably is, well, you would have thought that most people would be excited about that. It's returning out of exile back into the promised land. Um, it's being able to go back and rebuild the temple. But when you, when you read through the rest of, of Ezra chapter 1 and also then into to Ezra chapter 2, it says... God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to return to Persia. Sorry, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And so there obviously were people that were stirred in their hearts to return. And in some ways, I feel like kind of that's the journey that that we're on. Right. There's there's kind of seems to be more voices and more hearts being stirred to perhaps do something a little bit different and return back to that early church type of community. There's more and more hearts being stirred. But when you look through Ezra chapter 2 and at the end of Ezra chapter 2 verses 64 and 65, it says, so a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah in addition to 7,337 servants and 200 singers, both men and women. And so in total, there was just a bit under 50,000 people that went back. But while that might seem like a lot, different historical records, apparently there isn't great records of how many Jews there would have been in Babylon at that time. This was around 536 BC. So, you know, Jews had been in Babylon for 60 plus years and many of them had probably set up pretty good lives. They'd set up businesses. They weren't slaves like they were in Egypt. They were just living among everyone else in Babylon. And they reckon there could have been up to close to a million Jews in Babylon at the time, but only 50,000 chose to return. Um, again, perhaps it was less than that, but there are other, other things that I read that said they reckon 80% stayed behind, which would put the number at kind of 200, 300,000 people in total. Um, but there was a large number of, of Jews that chose to remain in Babylon. And I feel like that in itself is one of the, the wrestles that's going on at the moment for, for a lot of people, right? And it, and it doesn't necessarily look like just in the context of, of, of church, but being willing to, 
perhaps leave what has been comfortable, what has been safe, in the same way that they'd set up businesses in Babylon and actually having to choose, wait a minute, am I willing to go back to something that effectively was a city in ruins? They're probably living in tents for a period, something that, I don't know, it's not too cold this morning. I was thinking about like, here we are. That's exactly right. The equivalent kind of in a freezing room on a Sunday morning. It's like going back to the ruins of Jerusalem. Um, That's right. (laughs) Um, But it was a choice that they had to to make. And were they stirred in their hearts by what God was doing and the cause in rebuilding the temple back in the promised land? Because, yeah, they would have been, you know, plenty of reasons for them to stay in terms of the businesses that they'd set up or the comfort of life there rather than going back to a city that ultimately had been a wasteland for 60 years odd years with with no one living there and we each have to wrestle through those kind of questions ourselves around how much do we value comfort and convenience as opposed to just following what we feel like God is calling us to even if it's difficult even if it's you know means we're sitting in a freezing room even if it means all sorts of things what is God saying in in all of all of that and, and you can see that play out, can't you, kind of across the board, whether it's friends or others as well, that are kind of wrestling with the same sort of, of thing at the moment, kind of going, what, there are more and more people, I think, that are having their hearts stirred. But just because King Cyrus made the proclamation and gave permission for people to return doesn't necessarily mean that everybody did. And we each have to make up our own, our own choices and our own minds around how we're going to how we're going to respond. But what I wanted to spend most of my time thinking through and talking through was the, the rebuilding of the altar. And so we're going to kind of park on the, the first few verses of Ezra chapter 3 and just unpack this together. Ezra chapter 3 from from verse 1. And it says, Now in early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled together as one person in Jerusalem. Or different translations say as one man or as one or with a unified purpose. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel with his family, began to rebuild the altar of the God of Israel so they could sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Then they immediately began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord, and they did this each morning and evening. And so, look, I feel like there's a, there's a whole lot, lot in this and, you know, I'll just kind of open a few things up. And again, if you've got any other thoughts or questions um, as we go, feel free to, to chime in. The first one, it says there that all the people assembled together as one person in Jerusalem. Or I think the, the NLT says with a unified purpose. And, you know, what I, what I love about that is that, you know, for us to navigate the time that we're in in this season, I think it is about recognizing that we're to come together with a unified purpose. It doesn't say unified preferences. It doesn't say unified interests, but a unified purpose. And recognizing that as long as our purpose is unified, 
We can go on this journey together. We don't need to agree on absolutely everything. We don't need to live exactly the same type of lives. We don't need to you know, fit in the same type of mold. But if our purpose is unified, then we can come together and see God do something significant. And we've talked about that a number of times that you know, for us as a community, this isn't about needing everybody to have exactly the same opinion on everything. There's so many different things that we will have different opinions on and that's really healthy as part of a family and as part of a community. But I pray that we're able to be unified in our purpose in terms of seeing God you know, come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And seeing the lordship of Jesus lifted up over our city and, and play our part in the, in the body of Christ. And that phrase just reminds me of Pentecost. Right? Then when they're gathered together as one, praying in one accord, um, united in prayer, united in purpose. And in many ways, that in itself was also that kind of return, rebuild, restore season, right? Jesus had left them, told them to return to Jerusalem, and there they were waiting. And ultimately, it was when the Holy Spirit fell that they were able to then be a part of rebuilding the temple again, but it was in people's hearts instead of on land at a site in in Jerusalem. They were, too, in the middle of that kind of exile, return, rebuilding season. And it's interesting that that kind of sense of united purpose and coming together as one is really important. And I was sharing with Bill and Alison and Paul and Julie before I had the privilege of going to a a gathering last night that was the first kind of in-person gathering of just a whole bunch of people that are doing smaller church, micro church across different denominations, across different areas of, of Victoria, all came together for a meal last night just to hang out and connect and share and learn. And, it, and it's awesome that we're able to kind of unite together across different denominations, across different movements and learn and grow together because we are all united in purpose in just wanting to see God do what he wants to do on the earth and see salvation come to our friends and our family and our neighborhoods and our city and see God's kingdom established. And so, you know, I think there is something we are, I feel like heading in the right direction and you can see you know, greater unity coming across different parts of the body of Christ where there seem to be more movements that are bridging different denominations or denomination becoming less important in different circles. And, and I'm sure there would have been people with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of experiences of the 50 odd thousand that were there. It wasn't like they were all kind of stonemasons and that was, that was it, right? I mean, I find it interesting, we read this before, but that the fact that they split it up into the people, the servants, and then they've got 200 singers. And that probably speaks to what we'll get into in a moment, but just the focus on restoring worship and restoring that kind of sacrifice and offering um, around it all. That They specifically mentioned the number of singers. They didn't mention the number of stonemasons. They didn't mention the number of you know, anything else, but they mentioned the number of singers, which is, which is interesting. That's at the end of, of Ezra chapter 2. Um, but there is, I feel like, in this season, a real focus on, on unity and that my prayer is that we would be people of unity as well. That it's not about, and again, I think that's one of the, the great things about old church, new church. It's not about one particular expression. It's just about us walking the path that, that God's calling us to walk. People will walk their different paths and we can be united in purpose. We don't need to be united in expression. We don't need to be united in preferences, but we can be united in purpose and actually become one body and one bride that, that genuinely rebuilds and restores what, what God wants to do on the earth. So that's verse 1 of, of Ezra chapter 3. 
And then, interestingly, it says, Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family, began to rebuild the altar. And so, Jeshua, um, obviously that's where you get Jesus from, Yeshua, that's, um, is, was the high priest at the time. And Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. And so it was this kind of coming together of, of priest and king or priest and, and government. And some would say that was kind of speaking messianically of our great you know, king priest Jesus. And, and that's absolutely true. And that he came to rebuild and restore um, in, in the way that he did. And he's coming back one more time to, to, to finish that, that job. But also it speaks to me in some ways about, about us. In, in Revelation, we are called kings and priests as well. Um, and it's this kind of coming together of both sacred and secular. All right? There is the, the high priest, but there's also the governor of Judah. And we need to, to see those two come together. It wasn't just the priest. It, they needed both of them working together, the, the secular and the, and the sacred. And I think, again, as we continue to move forward, it's kind of breaking out of this Sunday morning box and actually recognizing that our life with God and our call and the journey that we're on is so much about genuinely being a follower of Jesus every day of our lives. It's not about kind of living in this sort of sacred box for, for two hours on a Sunday morning and that's our spiritual life, but actually bringing the secular and the sacred together. And so if we're washing the dishes at home, if we're at work or whatever else, those spaces are just as important as gathering together on a Sunday morning. Um, and that kind of separation between the two, I think, is one of the things that I believe and I pray is, is removed as part of this season. That all of a sudden, church doesn't need to just be about two hours on a Sunday. And to be honest, some of the communities that I met last night, they're not meeting on a Sunday either. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be a, a Sunday necessarily. It's about you know, being people who are genuine living our lives and following Jesus. And whether that's a Thursday, whether that's a Tuesday, whether that's a Sunday, whatever that, that, that looks like, um, being those that kind of break down the wall between secular and sacred and actually bring God into our workplace, but also then bring the rest of our lives into the time that we gather here. I know I was sharing last week and it seemed to resonate with people that one of the things about the early church was reading through the way they had their meals and their time together, there was often a space where people would just come with questions about stuff that was going on at work, stuff that was going on at home, and just ask for people's help and support. Like, I've got this issue going on at work. What does everybody think? And, and <laughs> but, but that's what church community is, is meant to be for, right? And it's kind of bringing what we in our minds see as secular into the sacred, but also the other way around, bringing what we perhaps as has seen as, as secular, bringing that into the sacred and vice versa. And so it's this kind of secular and sacred, the priest and the governor working together. And I love that it says that um, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, came with his family, began to rebuild the altar of God. And I think, depending on the translation, it might say with his brethren or something like that, or relatives. Um, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, but I do feel like this season, there's something about restoring kind of family and journeying, you know, the, the life and our walk with God as, as families, 
right? This isn't about necessarily separating this life stage and that life stage and that life stage, but learning that we rebuild the altar of God and the life that we live with Jesus is something that we do as a family. And so, um, you know, that's for, for us and our kids, but also our spiritual family and being able to do that together. So I think that in itself just really spoke to me and, and kind of confirmed some of what we've been talking about already and some of the things that we've been um, spending time praying into as well, that there's something special about doing things together as family and making sure that all of the generations are included. So they began to rebuild the altar of the God of Israel so they could sacrifice burnt offerings on it. As instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God, even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. So there's a whole bunch in all of that. And I just thought I'd kind of start by saying, you know, one of the things that struck me was that it was the altar that they chose to rebuild first. they, They didn't choose to rebuild any other part of the temple. They didn't choose to rebuild the walls around the city. They chose to rebuild the, the altar first. And I think there's a, a bunch of things that kind of are significant about that. One is that perhaps God is kind of more interested in our sacrifice and our worship than he is in the building or the, the structure in which that, that happens. Right? That it's actually about rebuilding the altar first and foremost, that place of worship, that place of sacrifice, that place of offering is more important than the structure in which that that happens. And so, you know, one of the things, like I said, that I was really encouraged about our conversation last week was that it was less about the external structure. It wasn't about whether we're meeting in homes or buildings or any of those things. It was actually about the heart of, of worship and sacrifice. And I did write one quote down here that really struck me from one of the, the commentaries that I, that I was reading, and I, and I love this, and it says, there cannot be a temple without an altar, but there may be an altar without a temple. God meets man at the place of sacrifice, even though there be no house for his name. Isn't that powerful? That you can have an altar without a temple, but you can't have a temple without an altar. And I wonder whether in some ways, you know, some of the, the journeys, some of the stories, some of the things that are being exposed across different parts of, of church life at the moment. I wonder whether perhaps there's some temples that actually don't have the altar that they are meant to have at the moment. And we've kind of missed our focus and at times focused too much on the temple and not enough on the altar. When actually the way God designed it is that really it's, it's all about the altar and he's less concerned about the temple around it. Because it's that, that place of, of the altar where, you know, you kind of are able to deal with and seek forgiveness from the sins of the past, but also then consecrate yourself for the future. And there's this kind of significant moment, particularly in the context of thinking about returning and rebuilding and all those sorts of things, that it's an altar where they're able to bring their sin offerings and their sacrifices, but also rededicate and consecrate themselves for the future. And it's this, this opportunity to leave behind some of the things from the past and refocus our hearts and rededicate our lives for, for what he's doing going forward. And that wouldn't have been an easy process for 
the Jews back then coming into Jerusalem. It would have been a, a wasteland, a whole lot of rubble. There, there might have been a, perhaps a, a makeshift altar because history says that the Samaritans are actually come from Jews who escaped when the Babylonians tried to invade. They ran into the hills and they lived there and ended up you know, intermarrying with others that were in the area at the time. And so there were this kind of mixed breed of Judaism and other cultic religions that were around at the time. And so it's likely that they might have had a form of, of altar there, but it probably would have been contaminated with whatever idolatrous practices they had. And so there was this tension, and that's why you read there that it says, even though the people were afraid of the local residents, there was this kind of animosity between the, the Samaritans that had remained and then the Jews coming back. And you, you see that animosity all the way through when, when Jesus comes and speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well, that, that over kind of centuries, that tension remained. Um, and this is where that began. And so here were the Jews, they come in and they would have had to not only wrestle with dismantling whatever altar the Samaritans might have had there, but they would have also had to dig through all of the rubble to find the old site where the altar was originally constructed. And I can't help but think that that speaks so powerfully into so much of the journey that we've been on. It's kind of trying to dismantle old mindsets, dismantle kind of religious ways of thinking that weren't, weren't helpful or kind of had a little bit of true, genuine worship, but were mixed with other things that weren't healthy, needing to dismantle that and then kind of dig through perhaps the mess in our souls, the mess in our lives, and actually find the true foundation of genuinely worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. And so that, that's what they would have had to, to do, um, was digging through this rubble, trying to find the, the foundation, right? They didn't just build it anywhere. It says they specifically built it at its old site. And I, and I do feel like prophetically that speaks into the journey that, that we're on, kind of rediscovering early church community, kind of trying to find again that, that foundation that remains and that's been God's heart from the very beginning. And perhaps we've added things and there's other stuff that's been built over the top. Some stuff has crumbled and there's trying to dig through the rubble of the last 2,000 years to kind of return back to what that foundation was meant to be so we can begin building. And then they immediately began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord. And they did this each morning and evening. And so straight away, there was this kind of devotion to, to worship. And I think it's in the NLT that, that actually says, you know, in verse, uh, verse 2, where it says that they rebuilt the altar so that they could sacrifice burnt offerings. I'm pretty sure the NLT says because they wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings. Yeah, is that what you've got? Yeah, yeah. And I love that because you can see through here that there was, it wasn't just a kind of religious rebuilding project. It was actually a heart that desired to restore worship and sacrifice and offering back to the Lord. And I love that it says because they wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings. And my prayer is that, you know, for all of us, and as we continue on this journey, that it's, it's not about, you know, religious activity, but it's actually about the, the desire of our hearts to want to worship, to want to live our lives for the Lord.
And surely that has to be one of the things if we're going to live lives that produce fruit, but also are able to kind of walk the path, you know, year after year and in the ups and downs of life. It has to be something that's coming from our heart and the motives of our heart, as opposed to just trying to perform to please someone or some kind of religious obligation or acting out of, you know, fear of condemnation. It has to be something that's coming from this place of our hearts want to worship the Lord and want to gather together and encourage one another and want to be a part of what God is doing in this day and in this hour. And they did this each morning and evening. And again, I love, you know, and this is obviously a kind of a picture and we know that scripture in Hebrews tells us the Old Testament law was kind of a type and shadow of, you know, the the new covenant that This was something that wasn't just done here and there or not even once a week, but they did it each morning and evening. And we're called to be those that are living our lives for the Lord and offering our hearts up to him every day. Whether we're going to work, whether we're coming to church, whether we're hanging out at home, whether we're doing whatever it is that we're doing, we're called to be people who are offering ourselves back as as sacrifices and offerings to the Lord each and every day.